the one thing that will be most obvious about you to your people is your touch or lack of touch with God. The one thing your people will not forgive in you is lack of familiarity with God. A devotional life cannot hide itself. Your private hunger for God will not be the subject of every sermon, but it will be the power behind everything you say. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. It's Jason here, enjoying one of the 20 sunny days we get in Vancouver. It is hot in this room I'm recording. I just can't help but hope that somehow you're listening to this beside a lake somewhere, maybe in Muskoka, maybe on the East Coast by the ocean. Most likely you're probably driving to work, getting ready for the fall. And I know we're getting into gear for that here. Wherever you find yourself, we're so glad you could join us today for another episode. Today, we got a conversation with Sunder Krishnan. Now, here's the thing. I love every one of our guests. It's like my children. I love them all the same. But every once in a while, you know, someone stands out. And I got to say this, these are the kinds of interviews I'm doing this for. And here's why, because this is someone who's done the decades of work, the deep work of following Jesus through all the ebbs and flows of life, but also serving in the trenches of a local church. So here's Sunder's bio. He spent 36 years pastoring at Rexdale Alliance Church in the GTA, first as the teaching pastor and then as a lead pastor. He retired in 2016, but continues to preach and teach and given his life away as a mentor to the next generation. And I think you've picked this up before in the Canadian church leaders content, but we're passionate about this idea of the next generation of pastors pointing and looking towards sages, people who've gone the distance, who've finished well, who've been faithful to the core things. And Sunder represents that in a very profound way. So much wisdom, so much insight. I hope you get a taste of it in our conversation, this deep well of wisdom and love for the Lord. There's this moment, I don't wanna give it away. But he talked about a moment where he realized that people weren't listening to his sermons. I don't think he meant they weren't actually listening. He's a great preacher, but he goes, eventually I realized they were watching my life. And I think that's a profound and convicting invitation for us as pastors and leaders. Sunder's written a number of books, including The Conquest of Inner Space, Learning the Language of Prayer, which had a forward from Eugene Peterson. And we've had another Christian on our podcast before, Sunder's son, Vijay. VJ is a pastor at the Well Church in Ontario. We love VJ. If you didn't hear our conversation with him, you can go back in the archives and find it. And that's where Sunder and his wife attend now, the Well Church in Ontario. And one of the things that Sunder feels called to talk a lot about is preaching, preaching the word of God. And you'll hear that in bits and pieces of our episode today. And we continue to want to build resources that serve you as you serve the people you lead through preaching and teaching. And so recently we're able to get a three-part preaching course from Daryl Johnson up and recorded online. And this has been a goal of ours for a while. We're so excited to share it with you. So in this course, Daryl shares such a compelling biblical vision for preaching and invites us as preachers into his own process, how he structures a message and delivers sermons and captures people's imagination. And you can find more about that course at daryljohnson.ca. And if for any reason, any of the resources on there or at CCLand are cost prohibitive, let us know. We'll get it to you anyways. Okay, here's a quick word from our friends at Compassion who so generously make these episodes possible. So we'll hear from our friends and then jump in with Sunder. One thing we love about Compassion Canada is their commitment to the local church and to local church leaders. It's really something that's built into their identity as an organization. And that's one reason why we're happy to partner with them at CCLN. In the 25 countries where Compassion serves children living in poverty, they invest in local churches, pastors, and volunteers to equip and empower the church to reach their neighbors with practical care and the good news of Jesus. Here in Canada, it's the exact same. Compassion is wholly committed to investing in Canadian local church leaders, in particular during these times when refreshment and connection and refueling is so needed. Compassion is doing things like national pastors calls and giving away free resources for pastors. We know you'll find rich connection in reaching out to the Compassion Church team. They'd even love to just hear how you're doing and to pray for you. You can get in touch with them today by heading to compassion.ca. 
That's compassion.ca. Well, Sunder, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks for making time to chat with us. Oh, it's my privilege. I've been looking forward to this for some time. You have quite the reputation all across Canada. People speak of you, of your ministry, of your faithfulness and the way you encourage pastors. And uh, it's amazing. It's amazing how many people point back to you as a voice of encouragement. And so that's the whole point of this podcast is we want to strengthen pastors. And I would love to hear a bit of your story. How did you find yourself in ministry and then serving pastors? And just take us in. Well, from the time I became a follower of Jesus Christ uh, in India, uh, I was in my undergraduate uh, program uh, in engineering at, at the Indian Institute of Technology in New Delhi. I graduated from there and then came to MIT in Boston to do my master's work. But no, no thought of any pastoral ministry. But very, very quickly after I became a Christ follower, uh, I happened to discover a, a copy, a, a disc, almost discarded copy of the commentary on Romans. I always say now the book found me. I didn't find the book. Hmm. And I started reading it. I got fascinated by it. And I had the strange desire that I wanted to communicate what I was learning to people, even though hmm. I knew nothing. And the director of Youth for Christ, who was the organization that uh, under whose influence I kind of grew up in my early faith walk, uh, he was one of these uh, um, leaders who just threw you into the water and said, okay, sink or swim, but I'm there with you. And to my amazement, people began to learn. And so with no idea of anything like spiritual gifts or calling or anything like that. I just had a love to study the word of God and to communicate what I was learning with others. And mm. in the beginning, I just simply read what was in this book and passed it on. I mean, to this day, God and his sovereignty, if that had been a book written by someone who wasn't really committed to the scriptures, anything, I don't know where I would be today. But this was a Welsh evangelical by the name of Griffith Thomas. And he took me into the book of Romans. I realized my mind was made for theology and theological thinking, even as I was an engineer. And so I went to MIT in uh, in Boston. I got involved with uh, Power to Change. It was known by another name at that time. I just continued learning and feeding. I had an absolutely non-existent ecclesiology. I knew nothing about mm. the church. You know, uh, It was all about learning, learning, learning. So when, when I there I was in historic Park Street Church in Boston, and the famous Harold Ockenge was preaching every Sunday morning. Everything else to me was preliminary until he got up and started teaching. And I made notes, like every good teacher, I made notes. And whatever he gave me, I would just share with others. And every now and then people would ask me to teach in a Bible study, and I would do that. I kept reading and studying commentaries and whatnot, just for my own interest in that. Then when I came to, uh, to Toronto, uh, I started attending what, people. What brought you from Boston to oh, Toronto? Sorry, as I was important. Uh, I got a job with Atomic Energy of Canada Limited. Uh, I, I got okay. my master's degree in Boston. I really did not want to do my PhD, although I passed my doctoral qualifying exam because, you know, in the, in the, in the kind of climb up from a practical engineering all the way to a high level academia, I was kind of in between. Uh, a mm -hmm. master's program was enough for me to, uh, enough into academia, but still close enough to what was happening on the ground. The kind of uh, very, very theoretical research at the PhD level was something I wasn't primarily uh, wired for. And, you know, the whole publish or perish mentality and that kind of stuff, it just wasn't who I was. So this was a sweet spot. And a friend of mine who was an employment uh, agent in Toronto uh, happened to ask whether I'd be interested in submitting my resume, which I did. And Atomic Energy of Canada wanted me, so I started working there. And so while I was working there, I was involved with Power to Change then. And again, another parachurch organization and People's Church, which is a famous mega church. Yeah. And of course, again, teachers, 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 ecclesiology, zero. Anyway, uh, I got married and my wife and her sister used to sing all over the uh, province of Ontario. So they didn't really have a home church. And I didn't really have a home church. But near the end of this period of the first two years in Toronto, I moved away from People's Church to a very small uh, apostolic church. So you would call it a charismatic Pentecostal church, but not what one might normally have uh, caricatures of what the Pentecostal church might look like. It was Everything was done in order and the spiritual gifts were practiced with 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 clearly anchored. Mm. So I was introduced to this whole new world of spiritual dynamics. I was exposed to the whole uh, world of spiritual warfare, demonology, and things like that. Because of the particular background I came from, I went for prayer for any deliverance, but mercifully God had protected me from a lot of things. So anyway, what happened was uh, when my wife and I got married, she didn't have a 
church, regular church background because she was uh, um, singing all over in different parts of the, of the province. And she wasn't particularly comfortable with the charismatic tradition, the things that I was learning as well. So, and I was working with Atomic Energy of Canada in the west end of the city, and somebody recommended Rexdale Alliance Church to us. And so we went to that church, and, you know, I was just completely struck by the pastor. In the very first sermon, one moment mm. he was preaching so courageously and boldly, and another moment the man was crying and in tears. And I thought, mm. wow, this is a strange blend of courageous preaching and deep love for God and for his people. Wow. I thought, okay, I even though it wasn't the kind of charismatic church I'd been involved in, and I could never go back, this is me personally, to the kind of churches I was going back before to, I just wanted the life of the spirit somewhere around where I was. But in this particular church, even though they weren't practicing some of the manifestation gifts and things like that, there was no question that this man was under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. So that's how I got started. And I was actually there for, my wife and I were there for nine years. I was served as a board member in the church, first as a, a finance board member, and then as an elder in that church. During that time, my, I continued to teach, and I taught a local Sunday school class. I taught adults uh, in a local Sunday school class, and I slowly began to develop two things, an understanding of ecclesiology and an understanding of global mission. Because I was, mm. in, even though I was a fruit of what one might call international cross-cultural mission, I knew nothing about it. But be, being in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, uh, you couldn't escape that dimension. And so my theological understanding began to develop at two fronts on ecclesiology and missiology started getting mm. added to that stuff. And of course, periodically, mm. my senior pastor there, whom I continue to respect tremendously, and I learned a lot about church leadership because I was sitting on the boards and here was this man who was leading. Uh, and just he led with a lot of wisdom and grace. No, he wasn't a perfect man, just like any of none of us are, but he led with a lot of wisdom and grace, and it was good to be led by him. Mm. And then in 1980, he received a call to go overseas. He'd been 19 years in this church for a long time. Wow. And but this call wouldn't go away. It was a call to plant the church, plant the alliance in England. It was a visionary mm. kind of thing. And so he recommended to the elders board that they hire Sundar, me. <laughs> Not as a senior pastor, because I knew nothing about a local church, I mean, in terms of running it. But the associate pastor at that time was a good churchman, a loving servant, didn't have proclamation gifts. So he recommended something very unusual to the board of elders. He said, why don't you hire them both? Hire, hire the other gentleman, a senior pastor, but let Sundar do the preaching as the preaching pastor. And you know what? That's what happened. God wow. called me there. And the amazing thing, Jason, is that we we had that arrangement for 16 years, him as a senior wow. pastor who didn't preach and me as the preaching pastor who wasn't senior pastor. And in that time, we counted 17 other such arrangements that blew up. Hmm. And that's where I learned there was one absolutely critical quality when it comes to ministry. It's very hard to talk about it. As soon as I mentioned, you'll know why. It's humility. Hmm. But both of us, both my senior pastor and I, and he's gone home to be with the Lord right now. The, the practice of humility took different forms. For him, it meant every Sunday morning stepping back from the perceived power position. doesn't matter what your title is. The pulpit is a power position, right? Yeah. He yeah. had to step away from the perceived power position to hand that over for 40 minutes to a guy who never went to Bible college, never had any religious training, never had any biblical background. And he was a guy who'd gone to Bible college had many years of experience. And for me... Humility meant bending over backward to affirm his leadership and never, never undercut his leadership. Mm. And so, and I, you know what? I only understand that now. Soren, Soren Kierkegaard used to say, life is lived forward and understood backward. So yeah. I'm not talking as if I knew all this when I was 35 years old. <laughs> Looking back, that's what happened yeah. in those 16 years. So that's anyway. There's that's so profound. <laughs> I, think, I think, tell me if you agree, Sander, you can add more commentary to this. I think there is a, here we are 40 some odd years later since mm. you had that arrangement. Right. And the church is having meaningful conversations about how sustainable it is for one man or woman yeah. to do all of the things required right. to serve the body of Christ in a local congregation. You know, there's the governance required, there's pastoral care, there's teaching. And then you add to that the administration and coordination of programs, discipleship, management of staff, facility, 
outreach, the list goes on. And everyone listening is like, oh yeah, all the stuff that I'm expected right. to do. Yeah. And it's overwhelming. And there's this, there, I think there's a resurgence happening where there's a conversation happening in the church about maybe there's other forms of leadership. At the same time, I think there's a romanticism what does it look like to do church as a team? What does it look like? So we say, oh, it'd be so amazing to have three lead pastors or a team of five and no one's in charge. Yeah. But, in, but in practice, it's very complicated and not only it requires humility and also new models. So I'd just love for you just to comment a little bit more on both the complementary gifting required to actually serve the body of Christ in a particular context. And in addition to that, um, the other qualities required so that we don't stumble into a romantic view and then six months later we're like all fighting in the front. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're right. And I think it, it's come to no surprise to you, I'm sure, when I said I learned a lot about pastoral ministry from the writings of Eugene Peterson. Not that, I mean, he's wired as a pastor. I'm primarily wired as a teacher. The, the one time when our lives overlapped for three, six months during a sabbatical in, in, in Vancouver, he said something very interesting. He said, Sundar, you, 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 you love... You teach and write and preach to preserve your teaching. He said, I write and preach because I can't help it, you know. So we're mm. wired very, very differently. And he's a kind of the quintessential pastor. I'm not. I actually became a pastor as a result of doing the work. Walter Wanger, another one of my favorite authors, used to say, in the awful doing of ministry, a minister is born. And wow. I think God took me into the pastoral ministry, not because I was a pastor, but to make me into one. Today, mm. I am. But all of that to say... I don't know. I, I think, obviously, there's a lot of merit in this kind of team ministry, but you're right. It, it takes a certain kind of attitude. And I would say one of the things I'm discovering is that knowing who you are not is absolutely crucial. You know, if somebody wow. were to ask you, Jason, who are you? Or Sundar, who are you? I could say any number of things. I am a retired pastor. I am a proud father to a wonderful shepherd. Uh, I am a grandfather to six beautiful grandchildren. I am a husband of a wife to whom I've been married 50 years. I can say all those things. The interesting thing is when John the Baptist was asked, hey, who are you? He didn't begin by that. He said, I am not. He said, mm -hmm. I am not this. I am not this. I am not that. And the people were so frustrated. They said, well, what are we going to say about you? Who are you? And then he said, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. Not very spectacular. Not an amazing identity builder until you anchor that statement in Isaiah chapter 40, where it came from. Because the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, whether one Isaiah wrote it or two, doesn't matter, was all to Judah heading into exile. Chapter 40 is a sudden change in tone. Comfort my people, comfort my people. Say unto her that her warfare is over. And then he goes into that beautiful statement, every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill will be made low. And then you get up, he said, and preach, behold the Lord. So putting all of that together, this beautiful picture emerges of preaching as building a highway into the wilderness of people's lives along which wow. the king of glory will travel. And all I do is point to him. And if that's a voice in the wilderness, give it to me. You know, I think myself, if you're going to, so from what I can speak from my own expertise, and I'm not a great team builder. I mean, I, I built a good team. Uh, in fact, one of my pastor friends would always say, don't say you're not a good leader so that you may not be a I think, the, I think the word for it is transactional leader. He said, you may not be a good transactional leader, but you are a good spiritual leader, which I think mm. would be true. So some of the questions you're asking, I couldn't speak with a lot of authority, but I do think this piece belongs. Just like humility belongs absolutely critically, this idea of knowing who you are not is wow. so critical because knowing who are not will help you to say no to a whole lot of things. Like one very simple example, around about the time I started my ministry, we had, a, we had a gal in our church who was showing definite signs of demonic oppression and things like that. And there were a few people in the church who had gifts in that area and were willing to pray. And this one guy said, Sundar, you've got to come to this. So I came. I, I sat through a six-hour session where people all around me were getting pictures and metaphors and verses. I sat with six hours of blank in my head. And mm. I realized I wasn't cut out for this mystery. I've never, ever been to a deliverance session after that in my life. And when people ask me, I say, no. But if I sit at the, at the table and open a Bible, within five minutes, ideas, pictures, yeah. metaphors are running and my heart's beginning to race, you know. So knowing mm. who you are not, knowing what you say no to, then helps you to say yes to a few things. Then I think if you were building a team, so often we talk about what are you good at? We don't ask them, what are you not good at? What do you mm. know you're not? 
I wonder whether that belongs in the equation somehow. I love that. Mm. What do you think the journey for a young pastor is in discovering both their strengths and their weaknesses? Because there's seasons of ministry, isn't there? Yeah. There's mm-hmm. those twenties where you kind of, you go all in and yeah. you might be le- leading in any context. T- walk me through, cause I know you mentor a lot of young leaders. Yeah. What is a healthy journey of discovering our unique wiring, our unique contribution to the local yeah. church looks like over time? Mm. I think uh, again, for me at the beginning of my ministry, uh, it was around about the time a leadership magazine was just being launched. You know, the famous magazine, with lots of cartoons. People would grab the magazine, look at the cartoons first. But there I read two seminal articles that were very helpful for me. I didn't know how seminal they would be. One was a story about a young preacher who went and preached. I think he preached somewhere in the Sermon on the Mount. And an older elder walked up to him and said, young man, that was a really good sermon. I would love to hear you preach that 25 years from now. And he said, you, mm. you would probably say all the same things, but with lots of pauses in between. Life would fill out those pauses. So, you know, that picture has helped me so much to I say patience is so critical. So I usually say to young guys, you're going to have to stop rushing. You're going to have to stop uh, thinking you can make changes quickly. Another one liner I picked up along the way somewhere is that we consistently underestimate what we can do in one year, in 10 years, and we consistently overestimate what we can do in one year, you know? Mm. And so one of the main things I try to communicate to them is you are in for the long haul. This is pastoral work is subversive work. Everything goes slowly. God is simply not in a hurry. You know, to me, it must be a humorous verse to read that. Uh, when in Acts chapter seven, when Stephen is recurring his famous or uh, reciting his famous history of his people, he said, "When the time came for God to deliver His people, Moses was born." In other words, eighty years before the Exodus, God called it when the time came near. Mm-hmm. That's my whole lifetime. My whole lifetime, God called the time is near. I mean, how do we think about ministry in a setting like that? Very, very slowly. By accretions, everything mm-hmm. accretes slowly, like these massive coral islands start off with small little deposits. And these little subversive little things grow by subversion, bigger and bigger, until all of a sudden there's a massive island. Mm-hmm. We've got to be prepared to lay foundations for things that may not happen 200 years from now. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So I would say patience, let life fill out the pauses for you. That would be one thing I would say to them. Secondly, I would say to them, Discover the centrality of relationships. Mm. Who you are when you are not a preacher and a pastor is critical to who you are as a pastor. This this work-life division has got to disappear completely. You are not two people. You are one person integrated by your faith. In other words, you are going to be a faithful, if I'm speaking to a man, you're going to be a faithful husband for the same reason you're going to be a faithful father, for the same reason you're going to be a faithful pastor and a faithful student of the word of God. It's all because of Jesus. And your relationship with them. And, and, and they will become a seamless blending and a flowing in and out of one or the other. Hmm. So that's the second thing I would probably say to them is slow patience. Number two, you know, because impatience is such an unbelievable thing. The, the golden calf is the quintessential sin of idolatry. Again, Stephen in that same speech said, the spirit of idolatry entered into Israel and Mount Horeb. And it took the horrors of the exile to finally flush out idolatry. It's interesting, archaeologists discovered all kinds of idols before uh, the exile, not a single one afterwards. Wow. It took the horrors of the exile to flush out at least that kind of idolatry. But while everybody knows the horror of the golden calf, you know, very few people remember or notice how it started. Exodus chapter 32 starts by saying, because Moses was taking too long, Hmm. these people said, we don't know who this guy is, make us a god. So impatience led to idolatry. And we see that then act out, acted out in the life of a man named King Saul. I mean, this amazing king who had an awesome beginning until you look at the time signatures in 1 Samuel. All that amazing beginning lasted seven days and then was downhill for 40 years. And what, what, what started the downhill slide? When he saw Samuel was taking too long to come, he said, I must offer the sacrifice. I felt compelled to act, Samuel, because you were taking too long. So that mm. impatience has just grown on me as something so foundational. So talk about that. And secondly, talk about the, the fact that your life is one integrated whole. And so you're not giving up ministry time to minister to your wife or to your children. And you're not 
giving that up to do this. They're, they are seamless. It's very interesting that Ephesians 5, when he says, be filled with the Spirit, immediately after that, he says, speaking to one another, giving thanks, making music, and submitting to one another. And then he talks about marriage, parenting, and work. Isn't it interesting that the primary areas of spiritual formation, not the church, the primary areas of spiritual formation are marriage, parenting, and work. Hmm. And out of that comes this overflow of ministry in the church. Hmm. So those are two or three things that come off the top of my head. And then I think I would say from there, Jason, the feeding my private life with God. I remember when Sham and I were walking uh, up to the church for my first Sunday, she told me after, she said, you know, Sunday, I wondered, will we last one, last one month? Well, we lasted 436 months. And some days I would get up and say, what if I have nothing to say? Mm. And for 40, 36 years in the church and six years after I've retired, I still got something to say every week because the, the, the word of God is inexhaustible. Mm. And Calvin Miller said somewhere, he said, the one thing that will be most obvious about you to your people is your touch or lack of touch with God. The one thing your people will not forgive in you is lack of familiarity with God. A devotional life cannot hide itself. Your private hunger for God will not be the subject of every sermon, but it will be the power behind everything you say. Those are some of the things I think, Jason, I would probably communicate to people. I don't know whether I was answering your question at all. I rambled a bit. but It, it was awesome. I love it. Mm. Um, so many beautiful and helpful moments. Mm. Sandra, I want to look back a little bit further if you're up for it. Um, I want to know how you came to faith because um, we kind of skipped over that. We yeah. found out your way into ministry. I'd love to know, how did you come to know Jesus? Right. Um, you know, I, I grew up in, in, a, in a religious system uh, where religion and life didn't really mix. It was a part of mm. life in the sense that uh, there were annual festivals that you celebrated together and things like that. And religion was very much a part of the ethos of the culture that we were there. But there wasn't any necessary connection between uh, your religious side of your life and the rest of your life, as it were. Uh, it was just there in the background. Uh, it, it never was a subject of conversation in my home with my family uh, or with my friends or anything like that. And uh, all my friends, both in school and in the community that I lived in, were people from different faith backgrounds, you know, who, who were there. So religion was very much a part of a life and not part of a life at all. Very much in that it was always, there was like the backdrop, the matrix within which we lived, but no connection at all, no conversation, no connection, etc. Then as I kind of got into my teenage years, 15, 16, that time, uh, and especially in my first year of undergraduate school where we lived away from home, even though I was in the same city that I grew up in, you know, many things that my parents had taught me were not, not good or not right that we didn't do, uh, which might be guilt-inducing. I found that there were my colleagues and others, whom are fellow students and whatnot, who were happily participating in them. I didn't seem to particularly worry about guilt feelings and things like that. So I began to wonder whether whatever my parents had taught me about God and things like that, would, did God really exist? Was God really a figment of our imagination to explain away certain things? So I began to ask my parents some questions and they basically said, look, we didn't ask these kinds of questions. We just simply accepted what we were taught. And I was already trained as an, I, mean, I was in my first year of engineering. I'm primarily wired as a thinker with a logical mind. And those answers were simply not good enough for me. What happened was around about this time, I was in my first year of engineering, um, I happened to attend a, a Youth for Christ rally in the city, uh, mm. along with a friend of mine. Uh, the girl was going to be my, become my wife, Shamla. She and her sister were singing uh, at this rally. And she came back and told us, oh, there was this great food in this place. You know, we weren't particularly interested in rallies and whatnot. But we thought, OK, food, that's good. So we said, let us know when the next monthly rally is. And so we decided we'd go to it. And we just kind of sat through this meeting. We remember making fun of uh, the speaker and things like that. And uh, finally, the rally was over. And my wife said, oh, she would be become my wife then. She, we said, go find out when we're going to eat. So she ran off to the organizer. They said, eat? We are like we did last September. Oh, no, we only do that for the first meeting of every year. So that was a real downer for us. But 
at that rally, I met the Youth for Christ director. And he told me about a club that they had on Monday nights called Teens and Twenties Are Most Important. They call it the Tammy Club. Teens and Twenties Are Most Important. And it was actually born out of a, a desire for an international worker who was from Canada. He was the director of international Central Asia, president of Youth for Christ, and the local worker in, in New Delhi who was an Indian. How to reach the English-speaking subculture. That's who I was. I and several of my friends, we went to an English-speaking school. We listened to English music. We watched English movies, although we also understood Hindi and whatnot. And so that was this club was born out of that. And there I went and actually heard the gospel for the first time in there. And so I just took a small copy of the New Testament with me and began reading it in my dorm. And I kept reading it and I discovered some very interesting things. Uh, I mean, I, I was aware growing up that Christianity was another religion like any other religion, and Jesus was the founder of that religion, and uh, their holy book was the Bible. Other religions had their own holy books. So I'm nothing very unique or different. I don't think I've ever been to a church. But here, for the first time, I began to hear not about a religion called Christianity, but a person called Jesus, and some claims that he made in, as an individual in my life. And so as I began reading it, I kept attending the Stammy Club every Monday night and kept learning more and more about it. And that summer, they had a summer camp. Uh, because in Delhi in May, June, it would get to, I remember centigrade, probably four, 43, 43 degrees centigrade, you know, really hot. And this the Youth for Christ Club would be held up in the mountains in Missouri at the foothills of the Himalayas, nice and cool. And so we went there for eight days. And for eight days, saturated in a setting where I heard about Jesus and, and the gospel story explained, I began to realize so much more. And uh, halfway through that camp, I became a follower of Jesus. You know? hmm. And very shortly after that, I discovered this book, <laughs> which happened to be a commentary on the book of Romans. And long before anyone ever taught me about Bible study and teaching and exegesis and anything like that, God was plunging me into a lifelong calling. You know? hmm. I'd love to hear how, well, I should just say, I love hearing your story. And I just I'm so thankful for youth workers. I feel in that today. Oh, totally. You know, like what a difference that's made in your life. Oh my goodness. How many other teenagers, like if that guy didn't go, I'm going to spend my summers, I'm going to spend my year, I'm going to raise my own support to reach young people. And I just think for any youth worker listening, uh, you're seen and you're valued. Like what you do matters so Oh, and, and I'm, much. I can second that heartily, heartily, heartily. That was it. That's where I learned everything in the first few years. Because remember, I, I said I had a lousy ecclesiology. And sadly, in the country that I grew up in, even within the, the so-called Christian church, there was very little gospel preaching. Mm. You certainly mm. didn't hear about Jesus in the churches, you know. Right. Mm. Well, what, I was, what I'd love to know is how does your own story of coming to faith, you know, you, you, this, you talked about not just being introduced to a religion, but a person. How does your own story of faith and your own journey with the Bible, how did that inform your preaching over the years? Because that must be sort of the backdrop to, yeah. as you prepare sermons and invite people into God's big story through scripture, how did your own story of coming to know him and your religious background inform the preaching ministry you did for all those years and continue to do? I would say the single biggest thing, Jason, is the difference between religion and ritual and a relationship. That was a huge biggest difference in there because other than that, there's nothing much to choose between uh, all the various religions I was exposed to. You know, whether it was Islam or Hinduism or Christianity or whatever religion, it all represented human effort to somehow try and get to God, to appease an angry God or to keep him happy enough so that he will not breathe down your neck so you can live your life and hopefully one day uh, when you stand before him, uh, You'll earn enough brownie points to get to heaven, whatever your concept of heaven was. And in some of the faiths, you don't, you come back down to earth in a different form and things like that. But all of it, including Christianity as a religion, everything was about doing, 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 and somehow trying to please God. For me, the lights that went on and in that book that I discovered immediately after that, understanding the significance of Jesus on the cross. I mean, I know that today this is a huge, huge debate and question about atonement and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, uh, some forms of atonement, uh, almost like cosmic child abuse and things like that. It pains my heart a lot when I hear that. Uh, that, that's not to say that it doesn't have to be nuanced and stuff, but I know what understanding Jesus on the cross did for my heart, you know. 
Wow. Yeah. And, 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 and the fact that he he did what I could not do so that I could experience his life in me, you know, and that I did not have to compromise to somehow reduce a God who was infinitely holy to something small enough that I can understand and manage at the same time, feel totally accepted by him mm. and joyfully enter his presence. Because there's something within your heart that longs for holiness, that longs for purity. At the same time, there's this push away. But if God is holy, how can I get close to him? Those early chapters of studying Romans that helped me. And not only that, from then I came to North America and my goodness, I was exposed to pornography like I'd never, ever known before in India. And that's nothing compared to what we have today. Mm-hmm. I thank my God that I, I preceded the internet age, you know, at that age. But compared to what we had in India, which was nothing, there was plenty around. And in those days, churches weren't preaching about pornography. There wasn't any way to truly help someone in the journey of holiness. And so I stumbled and bumbled my way through all of that. It fortunately, by the grace or the mercy of God or the providence of God, I should say, it never became an addictive thing in my life. But it was always there and there was terror. And I would keep going back to this holy God because of Romans 1, 2, and 3. Jesus, 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 I am able to come. I wouldn't know where I would be without those, those three chapters of Romans. Hmm. I, then I then after that book I studied, after that was Hebrews, Jesus Christ, my high priest, his present ministry. We focus so much upon the past ministry of Jesus, which is important. But for 2,000 years, Jesus has been alive at the right hand of God the Father, my high priest. And so Hebrews introduced me to all of that as well. And so that one, two punch, so to speak, if you will, kept me, kept me from falling apart through self-condemnation, through self-hatred, but to, uh, as what John Piper called gutsy guilt. You know, I'm guilty, mm. but I'm gutsy. I'm coming back to God. Satan's not going to have the last word within me. And oh my goodness, what a difference that has made. You know? uh, beautiful. Beautiful. One thing cool about your story, Sunder, is we have a crisis in the church in Canada right now. There's maybe more than one. There's many, of course. One of them is a crisis of leadership. Who will um, take step into ro- roles of leadership at every level, including senior leadership in the church. Uh, I know many denominations are speaking of the different vacancies province to province that they have in churches. Your story is interesting because you came uh, later in life, not through the Bible college system, but through serving on a board and the pastor tapped you on the shoulder. Nice. Yeah. And that's a really interesting story. So I'd love to just talk into that a little bit because I think we need all different solutions to this problem. Of course, there's the, the pipeline through the Bible colleges and the training route. But I also think we need to, as pastors, have eyes to see where God is working in our people mm-hmm. and who we might shoulder tap and call them into, whether it's deeper forms of lay leadership or even vocational leadership in the church like yourself. And so I'd love just to hear what was happening as you were serving on the board, serving as an elder, I'd imagine you were doing some teaching at the time. Tell me about that journey as the pastor began to identify giftings in you and calling you, inviting you into that space. You know, it was so interesting, Jason. And again, there's, unfortunately, there's no quick, simple answer to that because uh, this pastor, uh, he would allow me to, first it was adult Sunday school class teaching. Then he would periodically have me lead devotional sessions at the at a board meeting that I was present at. Then he would recommend my name as a stand-in speaker to other churches, you know, if they needed a pastor was away on vacation or whatever. And then he allowed me to preach in his own pulpit and he never gave away his pulpit very easily. So he slowly kept, I don't know whether he was wow. testing me or whether he had a idea long before or not, I don't know, but he kept doing that. So from his perspective, it was very natural. But the interesting thing is in the year, which was 1980, when he got this call to go overseas and I actually made the transition, three other things happened at the same time. I was set to become the youngest divisional manager within the company. I was getting ready for a promotion there uh, at, at work. I was also one of 12 people who was being trained in advanced media communication because uh, nuclear safety, which is the department I was in, was a very high profile thing in 1980. And so we were doing a lot of public speaking and stuff like that. And so it was all about 
learning how to communicate very abstract concepts in nuclear physics and engineering mm. to lay people. Little did I know that that's exactly what preaching is, taking very abstract concepts and communicating to the lay people. God was preparing me. And this was some of the most expensive training. I mean, it was not something like $7,200 per person per episode. And we had six three-day episodes that I was trained in, you know. And I had a friend of mine who said to me at church, hey, I don't think he's training you just for atomic energy. But I didn't know that. So that was happening. So I was getting trained that way in a way that the pastor had nothing to do with it. But so many things I learned there about communication, about simple things like clarifying vague questions, diffusing emotional individuals, leading small groups of people, uh, and developing strategy, things like that. I learned all of that in, in those settings. And then halfway through that, the two people who were teaching that said, would you be willing to quit Atomic Energy of Canada and come join us to teach this? Uh, and Jason... Mm-hmm. In 1980, they were uh, they were paying $600 a day. And they said to me, and they knew by now I was a Christian because I was hanging around with these people. And they said, and you know what? You don't have to work all July and all August, and you don't have to work all December, three months of the year, because you'll make enough money in the next nine, nine months. You can go and preach in India. So here I was being able to preach and teach anywhere without ever having to raise, raise money, which I didn't like either, you know? So that was happening as well. And then at the same time, the president of Canadian Bible College came and took me out for lunch and said, hey, Sundar, would you consider resigning your job and joining the staff of Canadian Bible College? We'd like you to teach mm. first year Bible. We know you don't have formal education, et cetera, in, in, in those fields, and you can develop that, but we'd like you to. So I had four different offers. So mm. I actually had these three. So I went to my senior pastor, who was a very, very wise man. And I said to him, Ross, what do I do? I've got this promotion at Atomic Energy of Canada, and I love my job. Uh, I have this communications training, which I absolutely love doing and I love teaching. And uh, while I'm not exactly gung-ho about uh, the Bible college setting, I have to be honest, it wasn't about the Bible college, it was in Regina, and I do not want... I'm a, I'm a warm-blooded guy, grew up in New Delhi. <laughs> the, the thought of studying and living in Regina just turned me on. I knew it wasn't a good enough reason, but I said, what do I do? And he completely surprised me. He said, Sunda, I have a fourth option for you. Wow. I'm leaving. What? You're leaving after 19 years? Yeah, I'm leaving. And I'm going to recommend to the board that they hire you. So there were these four options, right? So I didn't know what to do. Any one of them could have been God's will for my life. And uh, by now, I'd learned enough about God's will and stuff like that to not to be looking for a blue dot, you know. I was very, very helped by a book many years ago called Decision Making and the Will of God by Gary Friesen and Robin Maxson we just dispel this whole notion that there's one particular woman that you have to marry. There's one particular job that is God's will. There's one, But, you know, instead talking about the path of wisdom, how do you apply wisdom principles to discern between many good options, you know? And so here was one of those opportunities. So if I applied the path of wisdom, I could go any one of those places. So my wife and I talked about it, and we both came to the conclusion that Ross Ingram is such a wise man He's never misled the church in these, not that, not because he was perfect, but he was wise enough to work with teams and every decision he made led the church and seemed to be wise. We will go and tell him, here are the four options, here are the pros and cons, you tell us what we should do and we'll just do it. And both my wife and I thought, yeah, we're happy to do that. So we actually put our life in his hands. And, you know, talk about submission within the body of Christ. And I didn't do it because I was, I was one of these great, humble guys who loved to submit. It just seemed to be a wise thing to do, Hashem, and I talked mm-hmm. about it. And Ross came back and true to form, he didn't say, oh, yeah, look at me. You're coming to me with this big, he said, oh, my goodness, that's a huge load to put on me, but I'll take it. And a week later, he said, if the church calls you, I think you should accept that. Wow. And, and when the church called, that was also another amazing thing. At that time, we had uh, six elders and 10 executive committee members, 16 people. And we didn't have a clear, uh, at that time in the alliance, the polity wasn't one that had the elders as a decision-making board. They had this combined board function. And our bylaws said two-thirds majority of the elders and the executive board need to call a pastor, which meant about 11 people. And very quickly, I mean, this was a, they took the board by surprise. What? We're going to hire this new guy? Who's not, you know, they were caught between a rock and a hard place because by now the church was 650 people. So if we hire someone who's capable of leading a church that large, they would bring their own theology, uh, philosophy, theology into it, understandably. 
But we don't want to change the theology of this church. We don't want to change the philosophy of this church. We don't want to change the ethos and the culture of this church, which was an excellent, healthy culture. But we don't have anybody within. So what are we going to do? And it took them three months. And here I was sitting on the board that was making that decision. So I just zipped the lips for three months, Set, which was very, very hard for me. I find it very hard to sit and not contribute. But through it all, you know, Jason, it very quickly 11 to 12 people said, okay, so we had the vote as it were. And my, my mentor, Ross's philosophy was, if I get a 51% majority, I'll go if God wants me to go. I wasn't like that. My wife and I said, Lord, let, let at least two more people change their vote at the actual meeting. And you know, mm -hmm. exactly that's what happened. Two more people changed their vote. One person abstained and two said no. So we said yes. So I started preaching on September 28th of 1980. Mm -hmm. and, I, and guess what? I started preaching through the book of Romans. And yeah, by yeah. the time I'd finished my second Sunday, two people independently came to me and said, I was one of those two people who said no and i want you to know i was wrong wow so it became a unanimous vote in the end but after i made the commitment oh <laughs> uh, sunder one of the things that's interesting is i think on two levels one is there's the issue of money and mammon that i think sometimes derails us in ministry yeah. because you made a decision um, not that pastors in Canada, we're, we're, we're well looked after. Like yeah. we need to be honest, like we're sure. very fortunate. There's countries in the world where we don't, Right. but obviously there's always the narrative. I could mm. make more, I could make more. And of course, yeah. and so that was part of what you had to cross. But then I also think what your mentor, like, I know sometimes as a pastor, if I'm really honest, it's almost like I'm apologetic to people and it's just my own insecurity or maybe uncertainty, like asking them to give themselves to the call, inviting people to give their lives and I just wonder any reflections you have, like you made a choice a lot of years ago that I know you don't regret, but you made a choice to choose this path and you felt like God could have blessed both paths, but you chose the path of pastoral leadership over a path that could have provided more finances um, and other opportunities. Just love to reflect on that because I think sometimes we're not honest enough as pastors with one another is that there's like, there is this sort of temptation in our heart towards yeah, other careers because of those things. Totally. I think I, there are two things that come to mind right away. One was uh, several years before that, I'd say five years, probably in the mid-70s, I read a book by Ronald Sider called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And that's the first time I'd ever read any book that systematically laid out a theology of money, wealth, poverty, and things like that in there. And uh, while since then, I've read a lot more on the subject and much more nuanced, you know, um, especially Dallas Willard's writings on that subject. But certainly it was impactful enough for me to say, okay, I need to get much more serious about giving. We were we had already practiced 10% giving and stuff like that. But when I then I began to read and study a lot more in the New Testament, what does the Bible actually say? Is even tithing a New Testament concept? Or is the focus much more on what we keep and not what we give, you know, proportional rather than percentage giving. So slowly my wife and I decided that we will start deliberately living under our income. We had already learned that to live at your income was necessary because you don't want to go to debt. Uh, live a little bit below your income so you could give some money. Uh, but to live deliberately as much below your income as you could without depriving yourself. I'm like you just said, we weren't suffering, you know, uh, lived in a nice house in suburbia. Atomic Energy paid me a good salary. My wife didn't have to work outside the home. Some people have to, my wife didn't have to, so she chose not to. Uh, but I think, I, mean, I guess I can say it here. We got to the point where we were probably giving away 25% of our income at that point. Little knowing what God was preparing for. So when the time came to move to the pastoral ministry, of course, they were not going to be able to pay me what, what the atomic energy was paying. But the pay cut, quote to speak, wasn't that drastic because we were kind of living not quite at that level, but pretty close to mm -hmm. that a little bit more. So we were already practicing that. That was one thing that helped. Secondly, it gave us an opportunity during pastoral ministry to continue to teach, to continue to study, to continue to give and watch God provide so spectacularly and so faithfully. So we were able to teach our children that, that thing. So little knowing that Vijay was one day going to be a pastor and needed to live out those same principles himself in his own life. So so something that God led me to several years before that, so that so I was I was then able to preach that to the congregation mm. and say, you need to start living. No, not because I'm well taken care of. I'm not preaching this to you to give me money. 
Mm. This is for your freedom. So I learned all about freedom, you know, freedom from the tyranny of thing. Dr. Toza, the old ancient uh, alliance prophet used to say, talked about the tyranny of things, you know, in there. And, how, and the only way to break the tyranny of things is to give and keep on giving until it becomes a joy in your life. And, and so I learned a lot. I started preaching a lot, teaching a lot and sharing with people what we had done. Not perfectly. Uh, others would probably go much further along towards voluntary poverty, but this is how far God moved us and we were able to do it joyfully and gladly. The second thing is in accepting the pastoral call. Sham's journey, my wife's journey with me was crucial. As I remember saying to her, I said, honey, I can be a nuclear engineer with you being anti-nuclear, I think. But I could not go into pastoral ministry with you being anti-ministry. You know? So her wholehearted buy-in, because anybody had to pay the price as it were, would be our wives. You know, Because for yeah. them, especially those mothers, those women who choose to stay at home, or even those who don't, their home is, is a treasure for them. And uh, it's the place where they create that beautiful ambience. You know, uh, there was an old song. It kind of dates me, of course. Vijay always laughs at my music. And, uh, what dates me is an old song. It says, I can take all the madness this world has to give, but I won't last a day without you. No matter what was happening inside the church, when I walked in past the parsonage doors into our home, it was a, it was a haven. Was that a perfect marriage? No. Did we have arguments? Yes. Did we have conflicts? Yes. That wasn't the issue. But basically, she tended to the environment and provided an emotional hub in the home. And so for her, financial issues could have been a very important issue as well. And so her participation in that first five years ago when we made that decision, and secondly, the decision to actually move, were both very much with us. I think those two things perhaps prepared mm. us a lot. Yeah. And Sunder, you served 36 years. Do I have that right? Yeah. 36 years at Rexdale. Yeah, and before that, nine years, nine years as a layman in that same church. <laughs> Amazing. I know that that's not everyone's story yeah. that God calls people right. sometimes as planters and moves along and we bless that journey. Yeah, However, sure. there is something special about a faithfulness of decades. Mm -hmm. Can you just speak to that experience of being able to, to both the joy of growing up with people, but then also you would have experienced all that life has to hit, hit you, like the highs, the lows, um, loss, suffering as the pastor in one place. And that's a whole unique thing. So I just love to hear about any reflections on the journey yeah. of being uh, in four decades, in five distinct decades in one place. Right. You know, again, it's so, it's so I wouldn't say tempting, not anymore. It might've been tempting to kind of gain glory for yourself. Yeah, look at me kind of stuff, but I actually say it differently. I actually say, given the church congregation I had, given the elders who are my closest friends, if I couldn't do it there, I couldn't have done it anywhere, you know. It was a beautiful place for me. I don't know why. I have a very close friend of mine. He, he has a prophetic streak. And he came off the streets. He came straight from the drug culture. And God, God created this amazing friendship between me and engineer and him. We should never have been on the book. But we had an incredible friendship. But he's one of those prophets. Say, he and I might not see each other for six months. And we'll meet. And he will be in my face with a finger pointing, encouraging, challenging. He's one of those kind of guys. And one time we were talking about this. He said, you know, so the, I it came up with an answer to why you haven't suffered like I have. I said, why, Miles? He said, you didn't have what it took. You couldn't have handled it. <laughs> and you know what? There's probably a lot of truth in that. God knows how much we can handle, right? And so my life in one sense has been easy. So I can't sit here saying, you know, I haven't had to battle cancer. My ch I hadn't had to deal with wayward children. It was... That, that what I did was for some people equally difficult, maybe they could probably handle cancer a lot easier than that, is the, finding the splendor in the ordinary, to live an mm. unspectacular life for 36 years. Because I couldn't point to anything spectacular that happened in my life, in the ministry. You know, when I, when I joined the preaching team, there was the attendance was about 650. By the time uh, I took over a senior pastor, when Pastor Downey retired eventually, 16 years of preaching, I poured my heart and soul into it. From 680, we had moved to 7, 620, we had moved to 700. 80 people in 16 years? So what kind of preaching is that? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Then, right after I took over a senior pastor, we I didn't change anything about myself. We moved from 700 to 1300. And then after that, at the what one might want to call the peak, not just in terms of numbers, but even in terms of the vitality in the church, 
We put together some specific long-range visions and stuff, which we really believe was from God, and the attendance steadily declined from there back down to 800. I have no idea why these things happen. So nothing very spectacular happened. Uh, we had a multicultural church with 49 different nationalities by the time I quit. I was invited to come and speak at a How to Plant Multicultural Churches conference. I refused to go. I said, you know what? You got the wrong guy. I don't have any wisdom at all. I didn't try this. It just happened. Hmm. All these things that you look at and say are spectacular, they just happened. They were handed to me on a platter. So I, I just can't claim the credit for anything, but except that you can. I learned to live in the unspectacular and realize most people's lives are lived on a very unspectacular place. Yeah, there are some highs, there are some lows. Marriages have highs, marriages lows, but most of marriage is the mundane, doing the same thing over, building character along period. So maybe that was perhaps my unique contribution in that. But the other mm-hmm. things that happened were you realize the value, not of uh, leading, uh, mentoring, in maybe the classically conceived thing, but as much as growing a family. Like mm-hmm. I was doing the weddings of kids whose parents were not married when I started, you know. So two, three generations of people, you know, in that, that kind of thing. Well, so you realize, no, I'm just building a family here, you know, in there. And, and they're growing. All my illustrations came from wherever my family was at a particular time. There were pluses there, but there were also minuses because when my children became young adults, I, I think I started maybe failing people with young children because there weren't that fresh mm. illustrations coming from there as well. So I had to learn to work much harder, but I was growing with them. They saw me grow. They saw me develop it in the pulpit in there. Calvin Miller said again, another one of those one-liners fairly early on. When I first started my ministry, he was in his 17th year at Omaha Baptist Church. I thought, 17 years? Who's, how can anyone be there for 17 years? You know, like, that was half of my 36. But And he said, he said, by now, no one's listening to my sermons. Everyone's watching a life. Hmm. And I thought, okay, I just have to live a life before these people. Does that mean I stopped studying? No. Does that mean I stopped learning, growing? No. But I was living my life before them. See, the nature of your calling changes out there. No one's really listening to a sermon. Everyone watching your life. I mean, and, and when I had my farewell there and all the tributes, yeah, there were some tributes about sermons, but very few. Most of them mm. were things like, oh, when you were on vacation and my husband died, you called me. Wow. Thank you so much. I'll never forget that. And one couple of the newcomers said, Thank you for sharing with us how you decided to leave. We learned how to leave well. I didn't know that. Mm. I didn't do it because of that. Very few conversations about sermons. They were there. And I don't underestimate that. Maybe it's one of those things, but if it wasn't there, it would have shown up in all kinds of problems. But it was there. But what remained with the people is this life that you live with them, you know. Hmm. I'm... So grateful for this. Do you have time for one more question? Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm here to serve you, brother. So good. You're very kind. Um, Maybe this will be the last one. What are the challenges you see before the church in Canada today? What are the challenges in front of us? Yeah, I'm very nervous because immediately those kinds of questions frighten me because they presume that I'm in a position where I can actually say something sensible. My problem is... I'm not wired like Vijay or like you or like uh, John Mark Comer or someone like that. I don't have this big picture kind of stuff like that. So it's admittedly from this very narrow perspective. uh, I'm troubled by biblical illiteracy. I'm troubled by how many people even inside the church don't know the scriptures. I'm troubled by how narrow is the familiarity with the word of God, even amongst those who are pastors large portions of scripture that are unread or set aside. The extent to which culture is shaping our theology and not scripture. Uh, I'm troubled with a very poor ecclesiology. I mean, the one of the things that have troubled me the most about COVID is what a poor ecclesiology it has revealed. I, I shouldn't be too hard on them. I had no ecclesiology, as I told you, but I was 17 at that time. Here were people in, in supposedly vibrant churches not understanding what it was all about, you know. And the behavior of many, many Christians during COVID boiled it down to, do you understand what the church is all about? You know? It's not about you. Hmm. So, that, so it, do, are we building a robust ecclesiology? Do people understand Ephesians 1 to 6, what it's all about? You know? 
Why is that so important? And that that kind of, so that that kind of troubles me a little bit. Those kinds of things, the things that are, that, that are missing, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that I have found that troubled me is how hard Christians find to accept people who think differently. You know, whether it's pro-vaxxers or anti-vaxxers, or whether it's masking or not masking, everything becomes adversarial and us versus them. And but that's not what Jesus was talking about. And can we can we not accept a difference of opinion? Can we not agree to disagree and still do so in humility and meekness? And, and how seasoned Christians are quite happy being able to live like this. Hmm. Those are some things, rather. They are probably at a very micro level. They're not really speaking to big sweeping issues. And then I would say, along with that prayerlessness, Father, you know, the corporate prayer. And uh, mm-hmm. so it's something else that I try to build on year after year after year after year. And I can't say I pointed trying to any great success, but maybe somehow through the invisible channels, uh, that prayer, the it was more like a uh, a perfume that was drifting slowly, touching everything in the church. Mm. So people coming, like we would have people coming in, newcomers would say, I cried the first time I drove into this church. I, I cried for the first six weeks in church. Why? I don't know but I'm thankful hmm. that they sensed something that wasn't there. And even in the times when our numbers were doing all these crazy things, vitality never ebbed. Beautiful. And I was so thankful for the vitality. And I would exchange numbers for vitality any day. You know? hmm. Well, why don't I just add a bonus question yeah. just so we end on a higher note. What's giving you hope when you think about the church in Canada right now? I asked you about the challenges. What's filling oh, you with hope yeah, for the church like in you. Canada? People like, people like my son, people like you, uh, you know, saying, okay, here, yeah, we, we love people. We like to learn from you, not because of me. We like to learn from our predecessors. We don't have all the answers. Uh, you're, you're, that's a humble posture. You're taking it. Uh, you've been such a respectful young man in, in our conversation. I appreciate that. I appreciate mm-hmm. that because youth can have so much brashness associated with it, you know. Peterson called it historical amnesia. You're mm-hmm. sentencing yourself to learn all over again when you could learn from us, you know. Uh, and you are, and you're learning that. So I, I am greatly, greatly encouraged by the younger generation. And in recent, recent, recent in my time means two or three years, not two, two or three weeks. Recently, Daniel has become a very big book in my life. You know, Vijay has mm-hmm. been preaching, uh, sitting under his preaching has been a great delight. And he's been helping us to see that we are living in exile. But, and with six grandchildren, one of whom has got married and the other one's getting married, my passion for the next generation, and especially with the kind of church that they're growing up in, is large. I spent a lot of time praying for them and for the next generation. And reading, reading through Daniel, again, I just finished John Lennox's book on that as well, is that we need we need a whole generation of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's being raised up. You know, that picture of, picture of that, but if not. You know, our God is able to deliver, but if not, be it known unto you, O King, we will not bow down. That but if not, those three words, that's what I'm praying for people like you. And of mm. course, behind all of that is Jesus who said, I'm building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail again. So I, people like you give me hope. You're very kind. Yeah. This no, has been very generous truth. of you. You're very yeah. generous with your time. Um, I made more personal notes, just one-liners and thoughts <laughs> yeah. that you said yeah. that built that me true. up. Yeah. It's so good. I've just so enjoyed the time with you. And let me just take a moment just to thank you, not just for 36 years of faithfulness in one church, but your posture now to give your life away. You're a great blessing to many pastors who confide in you, who turn to you for advice. And I'm grateful that God has put in the church in Canada, fathers and mothers like yourself who are giving their life away. It in, it emboldens me to go after the things of God in my context, just seeing your life in ministry. So thank you so much. And let's keep going after God together for the sake of this country and Praise his glory. The Lord. Yeah. And can I add just one thing very quickly? Yeah. It came to my mind, you know, that uh, this whole idea, you know, there used to be a very, very popular metaphor, you know, passing the baton to the younger generation. Then I came across a one-liner that changed all of that. He said, these people are not interested in our batons. They already have batons in their hand. They have their own visions. They need spiritual parenting. Yeah. Oh my goodness, did that land on me so heavily. So in a sense, Jason, that's why I said yes. And Mm -hmm. I'm happy to do it again. If you, and another time you want to talk about something else. I would love that. Well, I want to say a huge thanks again to Sunder for taking time to chat with us today. 
And I also want to express gratitude to him for decades of faithfulness to Jesus and his church. This is the vision of CCLN, is that those of us in our 30s, our 40s, 50s, 60s, 20s, wherever you're at in your journey, we would have this kind of vision in mind, to finish well, to be faithful to the church, to give our lives away in the name of Jesus. That's why we're doing this. We want to grow deeper in our walk with God, deeper in character, be found faithful in our work to local church. And this is a picture of that vision in Sunder. So, so grateful for his investment today. Hey, if there's anything in particular that stood out to you from today's conversation or any of the content you're getting from us, we'd love to hear from you. Just shoot us a message on Instagram. You can search CCLN or write us an email, contact at ccln.ca. And as usual, if you want to check out any of Sunder's books, we've got links to those in the description wherever you're listening. And lastly, this podcast and all of the work that we do is possible because of generous partners, individuals, and organizations and churches who want to come alongside other pastors and support the work. CCLN is funded by individuals and organizations and churches that want to champion the cause of the church in Canada and serve and bless pastors. And so if you want to be part of this growing community, investing in other pastors through experiences and content and training, please consider becoming part of our monthly giving community. You can find out more at cclnca slash partner. Okay, tons of love. Hope the rest of your summer is amazing. Bye for now.